Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources that we discuss on the show are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcasting app. It's somewhat annoying, but a fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting many good ratings drives visibility on the podcast apps, which helps us build our audience. Our audience helps us continue to attract the great guests that we've been having on the show. So please take a minute when you've done listening today and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Thanks. Today's guest is Anatole Levin. He is a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar. He is a visiting professor in the War Studies Department of King's College London and a senior fellow of the New America Foundation. He also serves on the advisory committee of the South Asia Department of the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He is the author of several rather interesting books on international affairs. Check them out. Today we're going to talk about ideas from his book, Climate Change and the Nation State. Welcome, Anatole. Hello. So at the highest level, this book might seem very wrong-headed in a kind of a naive way. The core of the book is a discussion of anthropogenic climate change and what we need to do about it. And you come to the conclusion that more and better nationalism is the answer. And yet climate change is the ultimate global challenge. How can it be that uh, more and better nationalism could be the answer? Highest level perspective. Well, the argument of the book is that dealing with climate change is going to need real sacrifice. It's no good pretending that won't be the case. Fuel will be more expensive. uh, Taxes will be higher. Consumer goods will be more expensive. And that has been the biggest obstacle to action against climate change so far. Of course, the role of corporations, energy companies has also been important. But in the end, I mean, if you look at plebiscites, referenda in Washington state, uh, protests in France, and the the worries both of democratic and authoritarian governments uh, around the world uh, about popularity, you you can see that the biggest obstacle uh, is motivation, is just getting support from populations for what needs to be done. And so what this book is really about is how to motivate populations. Because frankly, it's been very easy for people to applaud Greta Thunberg, who, by the way, I approve of uh, on the internet. But then when it comes to actually paying higher prices or paying higher taxes, somehow the real support evaporates. Um, And so what the book argues is, it's not in any way um, arguing against international agreements, you know, or against international cooperation, not at all. But it's an argument in, in favor of using a concern for national interests and in the long run, national survival to motivate people to do something about climate change. Because uh, in the end, I mean, this is a realist view, but I think it, it is fair to say that ultimately people are going to be moved more by what happens to them and their country than by concerns about humanity in general. Now, it may be sad to say that, but it's true. We'll dig into that in quite a bit of detail. Uh, You quote David Miller on what is a nation, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting and apt. 
Nations are communities that do things together. But then you also say, among my fellow Western journalists and analysts and think tanks, I could see how the belief in the wicked and the artificial nature of nationalism had become part of Western educated culture in general. Could you talk about those two kind of uh, rather different perspectives on uh, nations and nationalism? Well, I, I love the, the Miller uh, quote because it, it goes exactly with the other main th- theory or thesis of, of my book, uh, which is in the end that international pressure is great. Uh, you know, international movements, Extinction Rebellion, I've worked with them a bit. I don't agree with everything they say, but, you know, if they can really, you know, alert people to the danger, that's fine. But all of this is intended to get states to act. It's intended to push, embarrass governments, parliaments into doing something. It's intended to motivate voters to vote in certain ways. Because I think this has been the evidence of the pandemic as well. Now, of course, greater international cooperation would have been much, much better. But in the end, it was only states that could close borders, impose lockdowns, shut down large sectors of the economy, mobilize the health services, mobilize vaccination programs. The United Nations can't do that. No international organization can do that. It has to be states. So the question is, because states, as David said, are bodies that do things, or nation states are bodies that do things together. They get things done. They can get things done in a way that no other organization on earth can do. Um, as to the, the the kind of soft consensus uh, against um, nationalism and nation states, well, you know, if you look at how it is addressed in, in much of journalism and then, you know, across much of academia, uh, you will find that, um, you know, nationalism is almost overwhelmingly described as something artificial, something constructed, which, by the way, implies that it would be easy to get rid of it again. Um, And uh, then there is all the language about how, you know, Russian nationalism, mass nationalism isn't real. It's all being, you know, whipped up by Putin or Chinese nationalism or Iranian or whatever. Um, And surprisingly enough, people haven't been paying attention to what's been going on in the United States, for example, uh, where one sees uh, that there is a tremendous element of popular nationalism in, in America. Uh, And by the way, I mean, there is the chauvinist nationalism. It used to be called Jacksonian. Now, I suppose we have to call it Trumpian. Uh, I, by the way, wrote about this 16 years ago, 17 years ago, in a a book on American nationalism, which came out in 2004. Um, But you also, if you pay close attention to people like Biden or Hillary Clinton, people on that wing, they are also passionate believers in a different kind of American nationalism, a civic nationalism, but, you know, absolutely about America bearing great ideas for the world in general, America leading the world. I can't remember how many times um, President Biden has used that phrase, America must lead again, America must guide again, America must be at the head of the table. That is nationalism. We may well prefer it to Trumpian nationalism, but it's still nationalism. And so um, I I regard nationalism as a very powerful force in in modern history. Um, I think that all the evidence supports that. Uh, And I also argue that nationalism, therefore, has to be turned to good purposes uh, rather than just waved away, because it's not going to go away. 
You mentioned civic nationalism, actually, one of my uh, pet flags to wave. Uh, and especially in countries that are uh, have fractionated ethnicities and people from all over the world and or people from all over the world, like India, who have their own thousand different ethnicities, United States, Australia, Canada, and China to a lesser degree. The idea of civic nationalism is really important to distinguish from blood and soil nationalism. Could you make that distinction for us? Oh, absolutely. No major country in the world now can can afford anything like blood and soil nationalism. I mean, that is a recipe either for civil war or fascism or both. And incidentally, I mean, that's true of, of countries like Russia as well. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly describe Putin as a civic nationalist, but he's a state nationalist, not an ethnic nationalist, if you read what he says on that subject. And he says quite explicitly, he is that because he believes that Russian ethnic nationalism would destroy Russia, which is true. Um, and of course, uh, we are now learning just how deeply divided America is in other parts of the world would be called you know, ethnic reasons or even ethno-religious reasons. And so, um, you know, I believe very strongly uh, that to hold our multi-ethnic, multi-religious countries together, you know, we do need unifying ideas and ideals and a sense of common responsibility. I mean, an argument I make very strongly in the book is that a lot of this language um, of international responsibility you know when you really look into it and when you look at it at its results it doesn't amount to much i mean my god i saw that in afghanistan you know covering you know the western presence there um, and one key reason is that in the end there is no responsibility um, nobody can be held responsible in the end nobody even really feels responsible for what happens there uh, whereas hopefully one can, or at least one can try to, to hold people responsible for what happens in their own country. Um, and so this sense of common responsibility and holding governments responsible, you know, is, is central to my argument. You talk quite a bit about the dangers of lack of nationalism in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and how that's a real barrier. Now let's go on and talk a little bit about another idea, which I think is got a lot of merit to it, which uh, you say, we are in fact suffering from a, a severe case of what has been called residual elites, ruling groups that have been shaped in particular historical circumstances to meet particular sets of challenges and opportunities and find it difficult or impossible to adapt to new circumstances. And I'd suggest that the, the West's response to COVID, at least in part, exemplified that. I mean, we were laughably inept compared to uh, many countries, even democratic countries in the Asia area. Uh, so talk a little bit about residual elites and how far they are behind the curve. Well, I mean, you only have to look at the coverage in terms of security. And after all, security in the end is, is about what? Security is about the lives of our fellow citizens, right? I mean, that, that's what's, what is most important about British and American security. And if you look at the security journals, if you look at the discussion, if you look at the essays, if you look at the statements uh, in the years before uh, the pandemic, you know, even after we'd had so many warnings, you know, SARS and so forth, the discussion of a th the threat from 
pandemics compared to the endless discussion about how Russia's occupation of a fraction of eastern Ukraine was a threat to the world, how China's occupation of uninhabited reefs and sandbanks in the South China Sea is a threat to the world. What turned out to be the real threat to American and British and other lives uh, was lower by an order of magnitude, or possibly two. Um, three, probably. <laughs> probably. I mean, if that isn't a sign that we were looking in the wrong direction, I mean, what is? Uh, and, yeah, I mean, what, what the book says is that, um, you know, that, that does not mean you have to approve of what Russia or China or other countries are, are, are doing. But in the end, governments exist to protect the lives and well-beings of their citizens, you know, not of their foreign and security elites. And our foreign and security elites got it wrong. And the central reason for that is that they are, like so many military elites in the past, essentially fighting the last war. Um, I mean, this came to me long ago when, when I looked at attitudes to Russia. Um, you know, NATO moved essentially, you know, Russia compared to the Soviet Union, 1989, huge tank army in Central Europe. Now, in some places, Russia is a thousand miles to the east. Russia has no allies. Russia does not threaten invasion of Western Europe in any way. Um, cyber hacking, okay, so they do it to us, we do it to them. But NATO continued and remains structured around Russia, which NATO now outnumbers, oh, in terms of troops and military spending, Ugh, make the calculation. I mean, Russia is just not a serious threat anymore. Uh, but uh, the, the NATO elites, um, like the rest of us, I suppose, they need to eat. And um, not only, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're deliberately lying, but there was clearly an absolutely determined effort, you know, to keep the Cold War with Russia going and not to turn attention to much bigger threats. I mean, incidentally, uh, for a long time, the alleged threat um, from Russia was allowed to eclipse not just the threat from Islamist terrorism, but even the threat from China. And I think that's a real, you know, a real example of how institutions get set in particular paths. Uh, of course, embodying thousands and thousands of careers and experiences which people don't want to change. And then it's very, very difficult to, to get them off that track. You know, like super tankers. Indeed. And getting back to nationalism now, uh, you have a nice quote from Milan Kundera. He's Czech, as I recall. A man knows that he is mortal, but he takes it for granted that his nation possesses a kind of an eternal life. Uh, that used to be the case, but as you quote above, you know, call it the progressive elites, uh, no longer seem to agree with that. Can we get back to a point where we take our nation seriously? Well, you know, that is true perhaps in Europe, but in America, it's a bit more complicated, I think, because progressive elites, at least the, the progressive establishment, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, some of the more genuinely radical elements. But when I was working at think tanks in Washington, and they were talking about internationalism and, you know, the decline of nationalism in the nation, and I would look around and I would see my, myself surrounded 
by symbols of American national power and American national ideals. And of course, all these people who are saying this were trying to get jobs in the next American administration, you know, with power. And then, of course, I suddenly realized that their idea of internationalism and the decline of nationalism meant that everybody's power and nationalism would decline except America's. And as President Biden has said again and again, America would lead. In other words, you'd have a, you'd have a genuinely international, um, you, you know, alliance and system and so forth with America at the head of it. Uh, now, that's not how other nations see the world, you understand. But I don't think that that form of nationalism, uh, th that form of, you know, what I perhaps unkindly called American messianic nationalism, um, has declined in the, um, in the American liberal establishment at all. Yeah, I would agree in the establishment, but certainly out on the, the wings, even not that far out on the wings, uh, and particularly in the academic world, you, you hear an awful lot about, you know, the nation state is obsolete, you know, nationalism is evil, etc. Not in the think tanks. Yes, they're part of the, uh, I don't know what we call it, the intellectual industrial complex where they're looking for funding and looking for jobs in a tightly driven cycle. But get a little bit further out from that, you know, the consensus that, uh, you know, nationalism is the wrong road is pretty damn common. Well, yes. Um, but the question is, how common is it outside academia? You know, academics spend an awful lot of time, uh, speaking as an academic myself, you understand, but they do spend an awful lot of time talking to themselves. And um, they also uh, very often um, lack all practical political sense, you know, when it comes to, well, winning elections, for example. So I'm, um, I mean, there, ha there certainly has been an effect of this intellectual climate, undoubtedly, and after all, key reason why I wrote the book to argue against it. Uh, but in the end, um, you know, I have a strong sense that the vast majority of people who come to Washington, you know, end up, well, certainly when they come to Washington and get their hands on power, they end up believing in American power. And um, I'm not saying that that is in any way a, a wholly bad thing. Um, you know, I, I quote in the um, in the book, uh, the, the the motto of the the Great Seal of the United States, Novus Ordo Seclorum, a new order for the ages, you know. And after all, you know that that order, with all its flaws and you know historical crimes, is you know in aspiration an order of democracy and freedom. Uh, and indeed, you know, I speak as a grateful Brit. Um, you know, America has represented that and, in effect, saved the world in the past. So I think um, I still regard that uh, that idea in America uh, as a very powerful one. I could be wrong. We'll see, right? Let's dig in a little deeper into your thesis. Uh, you say, blaming corporations for their greed and their political manipulation is necessary, but is also insufficient. And then you quote an Associated Press poll indicated that only 25% were prepared to pay even an extra $10 a month combat climate change. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, meanwhile, uh, oh, damn it, what's the figure? Is it $1,200 a year the average American citizen spends on what is called defense? And so much of this, uh, you know, is not actually necessary. So, so, so much of this 
uh, is basically, you know, the inheritance of the past or manipulation by other countries uh, or the obsessions of the Washington elite. And the military industrial complex. I mean, you know, there, that money goes someplace who pays lobbyists, uh, point out, oh, yeah, we got a plant that builds uh, $100 million fighter planes in the district of Congressman X, right? So the whole damn thing is a perverse self-reinforcing cycle. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, if America had spent a fifth of its military budget uh, over the past, past generation per year, uh, on alternative energy and, you know, moving to electric cars and so on, uh, it would have thought, you know, it, it would have achieved its its goals in terms of tackling climate change. And then you also talk about another discouraging uh, trend for attempting to use nationalism to solve climate. Uh, you quote, in a British survey conducted in 2017, the over 35s were much more likely to support the obligation to pay taxes well, those in the 18 to 34 age group were more likely to support people keeping what they learned. You know, my thesis, and I, I agree with you, by the way, and or with that thesis and that survey, and, you know, my sense of it is that young folks are further away from when the state could and did do big things. You know, World War II, when I was a kid, we were all about World War II, right? My dad was a Marine in the South Pacific. We played Army all the time. You know, Project Apollo, creating the National Health Service in the UK, uh, or in the US, the Department of Defense sponsoring the creation of the internet. And COVID just reinforced the lack of capacity to actually govern in the West. And so, Frankly, a lot of young people haven't seen good role models that would lead them to believe uh, that the Western nation state is worthy of their tax dollars. Well, absolutely. I mean, I see a, a really sinister parallel there now between what's happening in the West and what I saw in Pakistan, you know, first as a journalist and then a researcher there. Because, you know, pa Pakistan has some of the lowest rates of tax collection anywhere in the world, less than 10%. You know, even India collects almost 18%. And the reason for that is twofold. One, precisely what you say. People in Pakistan don't see the state doing anything for them. They don't believe it ever will do anything for them. So, of course, they don't want to pay taxes. But the other thing is, of course, that they see the Pakistani elites, the political elites, the business elites, absolutely openly and blatantly evading taxes themselves, you know, simply refusing to pay. Now, of course, I, I think that is also a major factor. You know, even I have felt this when, you know, when Warren Buffett says that, you know, he pays less proportionally than his secretary, you know, on his earnings. You know, when, when you see people you know, multi-billionaires evading taxes um, by moving their, their Welsh wealth around the world in barely legal ways. I mean, of course, it's going to make you more resentful about paying your own taxes. Why wouldn't it? Um, but all the same, people have to pay taxes because um, th that is the, the most fundamental basic reason for state weakness anywhere in the world. If the state simply can't raise the revenue to do things that it really needs to do. That, by the way, was something that Eisenhower understood very well, but his Republican successors have completely forgotten. Yeah, people forget that during the Eisenhower administration, the marginal tax rate was 91%. Absolutely, with full support. Yeah, exactly. You know, Eisenhower, a you know, middle-of-the-road Republican in those days. And, and those are all absolutely uh, you know, reasonable perspectives. But let's go on to a little bit more controversial thing that you have to say. 
and this is about the disillusionment of you know the nation state and what we're trying to do about it. And you said this can justly be blamed on the universal pressure of capitalist materialism, but the contemporary left's emphasis on individual liberation, identity, selfhood, and victimhood rather than duty, and on the benefits of immigration and diversity rather than community are also not assets when it comes to asking people to make sacrifices for a common good. Yep. <laughs> that, as you can imagine, has not made me popular in certain circles. O oddly enough, of course, um, it it's made me criticized uh, across the entire spectrum, you know, from the, the liberal capitalist right, who, of course, are all about individualism and, um, you know, open immigration for very good capitalist reasons, all the way, of course, over to the most um, wokish left. Uh, but I still think it's true. It comes back to this idea of common sacrifice, um, this endless, endless, endless stress, you know, on personality, you know, maximization of personal self-satisfaction, if only sort of psychological. The endless emphasis on rights and not duties is not, you know, doesn't help when it comes to asking people for sacrifice and collective effort. Um, as far as immigration is concerned, you know, the, the book states absolutely clearly uh, nations today must be multi-ethnic, uh, you know, must be multicultural. But um, it does argue uh, on economic and social grounds that, and, you know, it, it makes the link here, uh, to high structural unemployment, to the threat, you know, to employment by artificial intelligence and computerization. And it, it does argue that in these circumstances, to continue high immigration is really stoking socioeconomic unrest uh, within our societies, um, and that it would be very unwise to continue it. And that said, of course, I absolutely condemn uh, many of the measures brought in by Donald Trump, and I think Biden is right to reverse them. Uh, but um, I have to say a good part of the left now appears to believe simply in open immigration. You know, I, I cannot see how you can reconcile that with serious worries about unemployment um, and about uh, the impact of technology on employment, uh, or, of course, simply with the knowledge uh, that, um, you know, n not just um, unskilled jobs, but middle class jobs in general have declined radically and wages have declined radically over the past generation. You know, th th those two things cannot exist logically, rationally together. And it is disturbing that people just don't see that. I mean, if you're going to build civic nationalism, you've got to build social coherence, right? People have to feel like they all are in this together, right? And that they're not being torn apart by things that they, you know, fundamentally disagree with. You know, particularly as an example of this over, I would call it overreach around this, uh, I am me, I can express myself to the limit. Uh, in the election of 2016, you know what I heard the most about from otherwise fairly sane people that ended up voting for that piece of shit, Donald Trump? transgendered bathrooms in North Carolina. Hey, I probably can, uh, I see the point of it sort of, but on the, on the scale of one to a thousand, that's about a one, right? Compared to not having a guy like Donald Trump, who's going to absolutely stop any motion towards addressing our most fundamental problems for four years. So it's a, a lack of proportion and a lack of priorities and 
seemingly an intentional attempt to break down social coherence. Yes, and I mean, I thought it was interesting, the insurrection, if you want to call it that, or riot or whatever, um, on Capitol Hill. I mean, so much of that was also about sort of weird individual display, you know, a display of weird personalities. And, and, and of course, the, um, the social media are really boosting that as well. A, a retreat of society into chaotic and distrustful individualism is not also not a, a, a recipe for collective action. And we, we've seen a lot of that. You know, the uh, uh, we had John Robb on the, our show uh, right after the January 6th event. And I also had the former chief of police of the Capitol Police Department. We talked about it. And one of the things that has emerged, uh, I don't think I, I did not coin the expression, but I have taken to using it, uh, which is in the strange world we live in of uh, the hyper-individualist me, 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 uh, we're seeing this thing which uh, we're called LARPing revolution, live action role-playing, which is, you know, people dress up in Star Wars characters to go to conferences. Now they're doing it in the name of revolution. And, and if, if I look back, I can point to Occupy Wall Street as a good example of that. I can uh, certainly point to Black Lives Matters exercise this summer, uh, Extinction Rebellion to some degree, and certainly these ass clowns on Capitol Hill. Right? It was like hilarious. I mean, they thought they were, I don't know what the hell they were thinking, but they were just clowns, right? And they don't actually have a plan. They're just out there showing off, me, 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 this is my values, I'm so wonderful, right? In their own little echo chamber. And that's not a way we're going to solve our problems by LARPing revolution. That's for goddamn sure. Well, I suppose in a way, though, it's quite comforting um, because, you know, if you're if you're afraid of, um, you know, of, of a real totalitarian movement, well, you know, Lenin didn't go around in a buffalo headdress and nor did Hitler. You know, um, they had plans, unfortunately. The more our fascists dress up in um, buffalo headdresses, in some ways, the better for all of us, perhaps. That is true. Uh, on the other hand, to you know, mobilize our country to actually get serious about climate change, that ain't the way to do it, probably. Actually, just as a sideline, it kind of goes to my uh, my view of this whole thing. It comes from a, uh, my lens when I look at somebody like Trump. You know, some people see Hitler. You know, I see uh, Rupert Pupkin from the De Niro movie, The King of Comedy, right? A, a mentally deranged clown looking for attention who's incompetent at doing anything. And we're actually fortunate in that. And we may not be fortunate in the future. The next uh, wannabe uh, authoritarian leader in uh, the United States might be somebody actually competent like Ted Cruz, in which case we better watch out. Yeah. But that is why, you know, which the book argues very strongly, and not just in the context of climate change, you know, the, the Democrats have got to think really seriously about winning back voters, you know, who they lost. I mean, you know, remember, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, there is a very, very good chance that Trump would have been re-elected. Um, I mean, not by the popular vote, but by the electoral college. Um, you know, that, that's my, my problem with, uh, you know, a lot of these, you know, wannabe pseudo-revolutionaries on the left. They don't think about how to win elections. They don't think about how to win votes. And you've got to win votes. I mean, unless you think you can carry out a, a revolution in the United States, um, which you're not going to. Now let's go on to the next topic. In some sense, is you know one of the most important themes that you bring up. 
And that's, at least in the medium term, any reduction of greenhouse gas emissions is going to require real sacrifice. And unfortunately, the political system, and not just in the United States, uh, is able to mobilize voters around any sacrifice at almost any level. As you said, the Washington State uh, referendum, you know, Washington State, one of the most progressive, ecologically oriented uh, states in the country. What was it, a five cent a gallon gasoline tax or something got voted down. Uh, and you know, then the uh, you know, even more strong example of the yellow jackets in France brought the country to a halt uh, about a little bit bigger gas tax, but frankly, not one big enough to do anything real serious about climate change. You know, this is the uh, centripetal force that we have to be thinking about. What, can, what do we, we need to build in terms of civic nationalism and social coherence to make people willing to sacrifice? Well, I mean, that's why the book very strongly supports the idea of a Green New Deal, uh, though a Green New Deal is thought by Elizabeth Warren rather than as thought by um, Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, because I do think that the, apart from you know, telling people that this is essential for the survival of their country in future, uh, but there has to be some feeling, some feeling at least, of shared sacrifice. You know, I, I supported, uh, of course, Macron's fuel tax on environmental grounds, but it, it was crazy to accompany that with, you know, free mar- liberal free market measures uh, to deregulate the French economy. If you're going to do that, you have to accompany it with measures of social solidarity and also with, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound too ruthless here, but... Um, even if Obama had not really succeeded in cleaning up Wall Street, I think he would have kept many more votes for the Democrats if he could only have managed to send half a dozen bankers to jail. There's, there's got to be some impression that the, that the wealthy elites are being held responsible for things and are being tackled at least to some extent about having to pay their fair share for what goes on. And there has, of course, to be an impression that, um, you know, as, as part of this, there will be a degree of compensation and help and support uh, for the poor who will suffer, as opposed to the rich. And of course, concentrating above all on those parts of the country which will suffer. Uh, you know, if you're going to get uh, West Virginia to um, ever agree to this and not to pressure their democratic senator into opposing action on climate change, you've damn well got to concentrate explicitly economic help uh, to West Virginia and directly linked to compensation for climate change action. It's the only way to do it. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, You know, when you mentioned the Green New Deal, which we're going to come to in perhaps more detail later in the show, you know, one has to really think carefully about the Green New Deal. It kind of sounds like a snappy term, but let me give you an example of where it can easily go off the rails. In the 2016 election in the United States, I actually worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign. I was the co-leader of a two-county region. We delivered our two counties despite a statewide landslide for Hillary. Uh, So I was a Bernie guy in 2016, and principally because he was the first American politician at the presidential level to explicitly mark down climate change as an existential threat and a top priority of his administration. 
I, I supported Birmingham in 2016. I supported Elizabeth Warren last year. Yeah, in uh, 2020, I supported various people, uh, anybody except Bernie. Who could ever, st- who could stop Bernie? And here's why. Uh, his climate change was uh, policy, which I, last I checked was still up on the web. If not, I have a copy of it, was utterly insane. Uh, he said, for instance, that, and this he underscored this, which was that he would get all American energy used for electricity generation and transportation to be 100% renewable by 2030. Now, I have talked to lots of climate change experts, experts on underlying technologies. I've had them on the show. And I uh, joked originally, well, you know, maybe Stalin could have done it. And the most knowledgeable person said, nope, Stalin couldn't have done it either. Probably the only person that could have done it is Pol Pot, right? You might have to kill 20% of the people and reduce the GDP by 60%. Uh, it was, it was, insane. And he also advocated strong state socialism. He basically advocated that all of this new renewable energy uh, would be, or at least much of it, would be owned by the state. Uh, And neither of those, I mean, I just immediately said, Bernie has lost it. He has, does not have the right advisors. He's not respecting the realities of science and engineering. He's not uh, the realities of economics. Certainly, a move towards state socialism you know, has been disproven both in the Soviet Union and its friends, but even in uh, Western Europe. I mean, uh, uh, you know, France and England and other countries that had done a fair amount of state nationalism uh, realized it didn't work in most cases. So, this form of new Green Deal, uh, Green New Deal, struck me as Jesus Christ, this ain't going to work. And it's going to unfortunately tarnish the whole idea of what needs to be done around getting things done. You know, you elect Bernie and he says, we're going to do all this stuff by 2030 and absolutely nothing happens or very little happens in four years. And people say, that's ridiculous. And they, maybe Trump was right. And they elect Trump Jr. Right. Uh, when it strikes me, there's a, a much, and then this it drives me nuts. None of the Democrats have this in their proposal, uh, but a, a leading team of economists uh, wrote a letter that was put, uh, they bought a full page ad in the Washington Post and New York Times. Uh, it seems to me the most obvious, clear, easy lever to start. And there's a lot of other things too, which you talk about, and we'll talk about later, which is a refundable carbon tax and refunded per capita. As it turns out, the use of carbon is heavily skewed towards the rich. So actually the majority of people would be better off with a refundable carbon tax that's refunded per capita. And the beauty of this is when you make the microeconomic decision to buy more gas uh, or to you know, buy a, a, you know, a shovel to work on your garden, uh, the higher price of gas that comes from the carbon tax is directly effective. And yet your standard of living isn't any worse off, on average at least, because you'll get the carbon tax back in your pocket. Uh, further, if you militantly decarbonize your life, uh, the amount of money you make off the carbon tax increases. Uh, it's like the most obvious place to start. You know, we can argue about what we need to do to reform capitalism, but capitalism is going to be here for the life of our confrontation with anthropogenic climate change uh, to a greater or lesser degree. And there is nothing that mobilizes capitalism to solve a problem than a payoff. You know, if we had a carbon tax that started today at the equivalent of $50 U.S. per ton of CO2, of carbon, I should say, and raises to $200 per ton of carbon in 20 years, it would let loose the genius of inventors, entrepreneurs, 
uh, and the market and human capacity in general, probably not enough by itself to solve the problem, but it would uh, take it would produce a takeoff of incredible magnitude. Uh, well, currently, we ain't got jack shit, basically. And it's just remarkable to me that this most obvious of policies is one that even the Democrats won't touch. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, a large part of the book is, is about attacking, you know, the, the, un, the absolute foolish unrealism, you know, of the ecological left. Um, and I'm afraid that, uh, you know, and I, I attack the French Greens basically for their, their proposals would, um, would indeed plunge France into darkness. Um, uh, by by 2030, if they were implemented, um, and I, I'm afraid that you know Bernie does exemplify that. A lot of these people, Naomi Klein, is just the same. Um, I'm not. In many cases, I'm not convinced that they really are interested in climate change. I think what they're interested in is using climate change, uh, you know, as yet another way of trying to destroy capitalism, uh, which is not going to work and is not going to happen. Um, but absolutely, I, I, I think um, w- what you were saying makes um, makes perfect sense. But I think you see that that's a problem, and it's a wider problem for the Democratic Party and and the left, which is that um, you know much of the Democratic establishment is you know it, it is itself just far too mired in the existing system. I mean, you know, look at Pelosi, look at Schumer, to adopt you know, truly radical policies. But meanwhile, the left, which is important, you know, in, in basically pushing them and shoving them, it puts forward proposals which, which are simply, well, they're worse than laughable uh, because they are so crazy that they simply, you know, provide endless ammunition to the Tucker Carlsons and Hannity's of this world uh, to damn any action at all. You know, as as a as a recipe for economic catastrophe, so there's a kind of tragic element here. You know that that um, you know the the, the well-meaning ones. That's an old old tragedy in human affairs, I suppose. You know, the well-meaning ones are so silly and so radical that nothing they say, you know, can have any effect. And meanwhile, the people with power are not interested in doing anything much. So. Because they're mired in the you know the current uh, cycle of vested interests. There's one uh, one issue that I use as a lens to see who on the progressive side is a clown and who's not, and that's nuclear power. Nuclear power is greenhouse gas free, people. And while you may argue about nuclear power and particularly about the safety of the older nuclear plants. But you have to trade that off against the known harm of climate change. And further, there's lots of good work being done in in fourth generation nuclear power that should be inherently much safer, much easier to deal with the long-term storage of waste, et cetera. And if you're not encouraging fourth gen nuclear power at a widespread adoption of same, uh, then you are not taking climate change seriously, in my view. And these knee jerks like the Germans, I mean, can you imagine, you know, uh, how did Sweden and France uh, do so well on carbon reduction, right? You know, both of them, 70% of the electrical power in France is from nuclear power plants, and I think half in Sweden, the other half from hydro. Uh, and the, you know, like the idiots in Germany are, you know, prematurely uh, decommissioning their nuclear plants. And, you know, the Green Party in the United States has uh, shutting down the nukes as part of their doctrines without any thinking. I just can't take those people seriously. Well, that's what I mean in the book about the being residual elites, but they're also being residual 
uh, counter elites. You know, M- much of the left seems to be still existing in the 1970s. You know, they have this anti-nuclear obsession, uh, which you know is. Oddly enough, uh, they're, they're not directing it nearly so much now at nuclear weapons, which are the real threat. I mean, I'm certainly not in favor of, of relying on you know, existing nuclear technology indefinitely. I am, like you, in favor of researching new forms of technology. But above all, you know, only get rid of it when alternative energy is there. Uh, to take over, uh, because otherwise, you know, that, that's why the Germans have failed to meet their commitments under the, under the Paris Agreement, because they abolished their nuclear power plants, you know, before alternative energy could take up the slack. It's contributed to um, power shortages in, um, in California. And I mean, even leaving aside the issue of climate change, I mean, look at the casualties at the absolute, the absolute outside um, uh, estimate. There were 60,000 indirect dead from Chernobyl. The real figure could be a tenth of that if you look at UN studies. It could be a thousandth of that. <laughs> but seven, between seven and nine million people die each year of resp- respiratory disease as a result of aerial uh, pollution caused by carbon fuels. Seven to nine million. I mean, do the math for God's sake. Yeah. Another one closely related here, and it's right home, right in the county where I live, uh, these people who are fervently and foaming at the mouth opposed to fracking and natural gas, right? And in, in this part of the United States, uh, natural gas is being used, incremental natural gas, using about 100% to replace coal one for one in electricity generation. And you get a 50% cut in carbon when you replace coal with natural gas. Now, now that's not the end game. You know, after 2050, we have to uh, relative or maybe even 2040 start to taper that down. But right now, it's a big move. And climate change is an area under the curve problem. It's an integral, as we would say in mathematics. Every bit of carbon you shove into the atmosphere is going to be there for hundreds of years. So a short-term, say 20-year, 30-year move from carbon to natural gas is a big move in the right direction. And yet the nutsos fight it at the level of foaming at the mouth as if this is the uh, worst possible thing that could be done. So instead, they want mountaintop removal and strip mining a coal. What the hell? Yeah. But similarly, I I mean, I I don't believe for a second, you know, and I look in this at the book, uh, that carbon removal you know, is is going to be the a sort of single panacea miracle that will solve this problem. But but equally, this absolutely blind opposition, you know, on section sections of the environmentalist camp, even to researching this because they think that oh somehow this will uh, diminish uh, you know moves to, to to reduce carbon emissions. I mean, the point is, climate change is a serious, really serious threat, and for God's sake, treat it seriously and look into every you know every possible way of limiting it. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm with you that I think that for reasons of fundamental thermodynamic chemistry, it's going to be damn hard to make carbon remo- renewal pay. But uh, I could be wrong. And uh, you could be wrong. And it certainly makes sense to hedge our bets. Uh, and if, if there is a winner, I think it's going to be quasi-biological, such as artificial photosynthesis or something like that, uh, where we can use you know natural type approaches to capture and sequester carbon. It's certainly worth spending 
a billion a year. Just in the same way we invested in creating 200 vaccines for COVID. This is an emergency at least as bad as COVID. It'd be stupid not to, you know, hedge our bets and maybe it work. The other one that's closely related, and I used to get in trouble on this, and I'd go to scholarly meetings on climate change. And as far back as 2007 or eight, I said, folks, we have to also start really uh, researching uh, geoengineering, right? putting aerosols in the air, iron in the oceans, my favorite, uh, mylar balloons orbiting in space. Uh, We don't want to have to go there. But if I look at the uh, laggard nature of our political system, come 2060, we may have to, and we better have a better understanding than we do now, which of these uh, geoengineering techniques is least likely to be dangerous and which could be most quickly turned down uh, should we turn out to be wrong. And again, I hope we don't have to use it, but it's grossly irresponsible for us not to to be opposed to researching it. Now, I will say, uh, in at least the scientific world, people have come around since then, and many of the uh, most serious scientists of climate uh, are now saying, yep, we at least have to get that tool ready in case we need to use it. Uh, but in the nutsosphere, you know, to even mention it is to become a pariah. Yeah, I, I know. Um, and, and I mean, especially that, that may be a, a hopeful approach because, of course, given, given the way climate change and especially you know, tipping points in climate change work, it's not as if you know, we, we would really have to engineer the climate as a whole. Um, it will be a, a question above all, of course, of concentrating on the Arctic and the Antarctic. So yes, I mean, I think we may have to go there, and and absolutely, um, we must, you know, we, we must look into that. But you know, unfortunately, the uh, much of the environmental camp, it's it's sort of taken on the the kind of, you know, the worst aspects of the old left. This this fundamental, blind fundamentalism, dogmatism. Um, you know, denunciations of splitism, and which is, you know, just doesn't address the serious problem. I think we're seeing this exactly right. I mean, uh, anyone who listens to this show knows that I take climate change unbelievably seriously, right? As uh, the issue. I mean, we got a lot of other fucked up shit we got to solve, but if we don't solve this one, this is the one that's going to get us. Uh, and yet, you know, I'm with you that the doctrinaire, uh, environmental green left, uh, scares the shit out of me. These people don't have clue one how to actually do this. And if uh, any politician were to go down their road, they'd end up fracturing the country uh, and, you know, perhaps even leading to a civil war. And uh, But I mean, also, of course, uh, as on a number of uh, other issues, I mean, these sections of the left, as far as I can see, uh, exist basically to create votes for the right. You know, I mean, after all, that is why they are quoted all the time by Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and company. They're not quoting them because they agree with them. They're quoting them because they think that statements like this create, you know, votes for Donald Trump and company. Um, you know, they should think about that if, you know, if their real goal is to create votes for Trump. I facetiously uh, posted on Facebook or Twitter or someplace uh, today, this morning early, uh, that maybe wokeism is actually uh, a creation of the Koch brothers. Few things have done a, a better job of making, you know, true economic progressivism look distasteful to the masses of the American people than the wokes. So, yeah, if, if they were really deep players, you know, in addition to funding the Cato Institute, they'd also fund the wokes. <laughs> Except they don't need to. They're doing it anyway. 
Exactly, exactly. So these are awful, awful lot of you know things that need to be resolved if we're going to move forward in you know trying to get the social coherence necessary for a civic nationalism, and some of it comes around multiculturalism or not, right? Unlike Canada, the United States has never adopted multiculturalism as a policy. I believe the UK has also now adopted multiculturalism as a policy. You know, historically, we've had the melting pot idea that, and in, in truth, it's still happening. You look at the uh, immigrants from East Asia, from Mexico, et cetera, they're rel- relatively rapidly uh, converging towards, uh, you know, both cultural and economic and educational norms. I have a Rutt's law of emigration assimilation. If you say, are you from a rural or urban? Are you educated or not? Do you speak English? And a few other things. I can predict how many generations it would take. And the current immigrants are right on all those curves. Uh, So the U.S. has historically been a melting pot society, not a multicultural one. But we've also had tolerance for holdouts like, you know, the Hasidic Jews or the Amish and the Mennonites or anybody else that really doesn't want to play. They are allowed to, uh, and we tolerate it, but we don't encourage it. Uh, but again, and that has allowed us, historically at least, to have a high level of social coherence, or higher than we have now. The drumbeat from the wacko left on multiculturalism is not helping, I would argue, at least in the context of the U.S. Well, a- absolutely, um, because the you know my I basically have the sort of old style English approach. I don't know if the old you know the old English phrase "do what you like" as long as you don't do it in the street and frighten the horses. You know, I mean, obviously our societies have you know deep traditions of intolerance, but we've also been I mean, my God, by international standards, actually not been too bad at combining you know a necessary degree of voluntary or, I mean, encouraged, certainly, assimilation with, as you say, you know, allowing, you know, holdouts as only, of course, if those holdouts don't try to impose themselves on the whole of society, uh, which I think is, um, to a degree, what we're we're seeing today. I mean, I, I wish everyone would just, frankly, shut up about this. You know, I, I was always optimistic uh, about um, the future of America from that point of view, because, as you say, America has a tremendous record in this regard. Not, of course, of course, as far as the black community is concerned, but they're not immigrants. You know, that, that is, I mean, that is a deep, you know, original moral flaw. But it's not to do with immigration, um, you know, or, or or assimilation. I mean. Quite the reverse, and I think that part of the problem is that um, the the absolutely correct image of historic, you know, monstrous black oppression uh, has been now universalized to uh, a, a range of other groups, which, let's face it, have not experienced anything remotely resembling the oppression suffered by, you know, by blacks. Yep, that's exactly right. I make that point again and again. The black-white situation in the United States is a one-off. It is uh, a deep and horrible historical uh, event of grotesque, you know, moral badness. And 
and it's going to be difficult to work our way through it, that we've made a lot more progress over the last 50 years than some people like to acknowledge, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. But as you say, in a rhetorical trick, uh, many so-called progressives uh, have attempted to take the moral horror of the black-white history and project it onto situations that don't apply at all, right? Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the immigration from uh, Mexico and Central America, completely different. looks a lot more uh, like the immigration of uh, Sicilians and, uh, and Poles in 1910 uh, than it looks like the uh, moral horror show of uh, chattel slavery. And uh, that just tries, that just serves to alienate people in those groups and alienates uh, people who are looking for uh, social coherence, and it's just uh, really, really destructive of the attempt to create a nation state that would be strong enough to deal with climate change. And I mean, if you look at the you know Latino, uh, not community, of course, that's the wrong phrase as we've seen, but you know the many Latino communities, uh, much of that is also, of course, a a picture of successful assimilation, uh, as witnessed, unfortunately, in a very bad way by the level of the vote for Donald Trump in the Latino. Yeah, I point out, for instance, that people haven't noticed this, but yeah, or at least the left doesn't publicize it, that uh, a number of the, uh, of the Latino ethnicities are doing really well. Uh, for instance, I recently discovered that Argentines, Peruvians, and Colombians now have higher rates of four-year college degrees than native-born Euro-Americans. How about that, right? And the numbers for you know Mexicans, Cubans, uh, and others are rising relatively rapidly, analogous to the curves that we've seen before. And again, based on my four-part model of uh, you tell me where you came from in terms of rural, urban, English-speaking or not, educated or not, Catholic or Protestant, uh, and Confucian equal Protestant, and I can predict uh, how many generations it will take you to assimilate. It's working fine. Yeah. And I mean, as long as, you know, numbers can be related to, you know, the real economic situation and the real job situation, I, I don't think this is a this is a problem at all, actually, for, for America. Uh, but I mean, the economic situation, the economic problems are real. You know, the, the problems with the with the job market, with employment, with security of employment, with wages are real. And uh, an immigration policy shouldn't shouldn't be in any way about race or country of origin, but it should be about the needs of the economy, which, by the way, is how Canada does it. And Australia, too. And Australia. Well, Australia, of course, you know, people criticize Australia because there is this also legacy of, of racism. But, uh, you know, n nobody serious criticizes Canada for adapting its, you know, its immigration policy um, to the state of the Canadian economy. I mean, that, that seems to me an, the absolutely sensible, responsible thing to do. And it, it worries me deeply when the argument about this, uh, you know, is taken over on the one hand by the screaming racists of the right, you know, and the white nationalists. But then if you try to conduct a sensible conversation with the left, uh, you're, you're immediately described as immoral and evil for, for suggesting basically that there should be an immigration policy, which seems to me also not very helpful. Now, some people might think we're cranky right-wingers here with all of our uh, talk about the progressives and the problems they bring. Uh, but in reality, the book makes a very progressive case for 
heavily taxing the rich, you know, enforcing tax compliance, uh, providing opportunity, reducing in- income inequality, et cetera. And I would argue to, again, build social coherence so that we can have a nation strong enough to deal with climate change. Talk about that side of your story. Yes, well, I make a very strong case uh, for social solidarity. And I point out in the book uh, that not so much in America, but certainly in Europe, I mean, this used to be a cause not just of the left, uh, but also of the moderate and patriotic right. Uh, A lot of the origins of the well, the beginning of the welfare state in Europe was in Bismarck's Germany, actually. Uh, but in Britain, it goes back to um, a movement which bridged a, a whole a very weird collection of people. Winston Churchill, Rudyard Kipling, Conan Doyle, Sidney Webb, um, but all, all of whom believed that in the face of the problems, the threats, the challenges that were coming down the line, If Britain did not build a sense of real social solidarity among its people, Britain would collapse and disintegrate and would be defeated in war. Um, And, of course, this analogy between climate change and war has been made by many people. We need that kind of response. We need that kind of mobilization. Well, what I say in the book is that historically, everyone who thought seriously about this in modern history has known that you have got to tie society together. And there's no good preaching, you know, about common responsibility and mutual responsibility and patriotism or common effort. If people can see that, you know, that this is a joke, that the rich don't believe in this and don't have to do anything and are in fact evading all responsibility, left, right and centre. So, um, yeah, I mean, in American terms, uh, I'm a, in European terms, I'm a social, an old social democrat. In American terms, I'm a new dealer. And I remind people in the book, though, that um, among the, the old new dealers was, of course, Franklin Roosevelt and Harry T- Truman, but was, was also Dwight Eisenhower and indeed Richard Nixon with all his other dreadful faults. So, I mean, this used to be a bipartisan position in America in support of basic elements of social solidarity. Now, we can't simply go back to the the New Deal. Things have changed too much. Uh, But we can use that as an inspiration for the future. Like it. Uh, Now let's move on to another issue. This is where the nation state meets globalism. One of the things you point out in the book very clearly is that uh, one of the ways that the West is uh, showing the decarbonization that it does is by exporting its carbon uh, emissions to Asia, mostly, through the deindustrialization of the West, and that any solution to this problem has got to include ways to capture that. And, you know, know, I've talked a lot about the fact that at some point uh, we need to have tariffs for any noncompliant countries who refuse to enact, let's say, a carbon price so that this loophole of exporting our carbon emissions can't be the way that the balloon readjusts itself when we squeeze it in, let's say, the advanced Western countries. Well, I think, you know, we've heard talk of that already from people in the Biden administration. And I think 
with regard to China, um, that is very likely. And of course, that may also be the only way that you will be able to win any Republican votes in Congress for this, you know, if you can assure people that, uh, you know, American jobs and companies will be protected uh, against exploitation from China. The real problem, though, of course, is going to come uh, when it comes to India and some other countries that America wants as allies. Are you going to, you know, to impose the same standards on them? Uh, if you do, you, you know, you're going to have geopolitical trouble. Um, when it comes to building an alliance against China. Uh, if you don't, well, all you're doing is yet again squeezing the balloon and it goes somewhere else. Um, and that's, you know, that's another reason why I say that um, you know, climate change has to be put at the heart of geopolitics. And that means prioritizing it. You know, that's what priority means. You, if, if it is the real threat, then you have to put that first. And then whether people in Washington, you know, or in the military like it or not, that means putting issues like the South China Sea second. There's no way around that. Yep. And again, it's just priorities, right? Transgendered bathrooms in North Carolina or four years of Donald fucking Trump. I mean, come on, people. Or the Georgian sovereignty over South Ossetia, which, you know, the cause of the of the war in 2008, which I'm absolutely convinced most of the US Congress couldn't find on a on a map and yet was turned into this monstrous geopolitical issue and threat to the United States. Um, and really, I mean, that has so much more to do with the existence of lobby groups and obsessions in the Washington establishment uh, th than it, it does with the interests of any American citizen or British for that matter. Uh, now, here's another point you make in the book. You know, we're talking about, you know, we have hard problems here, but the, and you say, this is the crucial thing about climate change in the medium term. It will feed into and exacerbate most other existing social, economic, health, and political problems. I don't recall if you mentioned this or not, but we know already, for instance, that the Arab Spring was uh, significantly upregulated by a, a smaller wave of climate problems around uh, food prices and such. But, you know, we have all these issues on how to build higher uh, social solidarity. And yet the earlier or in particularly medium, say around 2040, 2035 impact of climate change are going to increase the stresses uh, on our societies even more. I mean, if you could talk a little bit about where those stresses come from. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, in, in the US, we can see it already. And in very much in Australia, of course, as well, heat waves, um, forest fires, uh, drought in the Midwest. Uh, obviously, we're going to see more flooding of coastal areas. Uh, but I think, you know, in the US and the West, the really drastic direct physical effects will come later. You know, very unpleasant things will start to happen quite quickly. They've already begun, uh, but they will be survivable. Uh, but I talk a lot in the book, uh, um, uh, especially as you can imagine, living present in the Middle East and in the Gulf, uh, about the fact that huge parts of the world with huge parts of the world's population are much, much closer to the edge. You know, if temperatures rise um, much higher 
uh, in the Gulf and in South Asia, combined with humidity, uh, then working outdoors becomes literally fatal over a certain temperature. And of course, then you get dire effects on agriculture. Uh, Water shortages are already very severe across large parts of South Asia. And uh, a combination, of course, of water shortages and high temperatures um, is going to produce significantly and ultimately disastrously lower agricultural yields. Uh, If you have sustained uh, temperatures um, above 40 degrees over a period of months, rice cultivation collapses. Think about what the collapse of rice cultivation would mean for world food supplies and food supplies within uh, India. And so I point out in the book that India, not just the Indian elites, but the Indian population, you know, is, is... dreaming of this idea of an you know an indian breakthrough to prosper to mass prosperity and also to superpower status by the middle of this century this is the you know this is the explicit goal but meanwhile the world bank is saying that on present trajectories of climate change uh, by the middle of of this century a huge part of the indian population will be sinking back into deep poverty. Uh, Living standards will be declining radically um, as a result of climate change and the effects on temperature, water, food prices, and so forth. So, I mean, this is no distant nightmare. I mean, this this is something, you know, which is going to wreck the whole program of the Indian state and the aspirations of Indian society. Now, (laughs) as far as we're concerned in the West, well, we have to start thinking um, in, uh, about you know, the effects of this on mass migration. Now, incidentally, India is already thinking about this with regard to Bangladesh. Because one thing I say about you know, the whole migration issue is that you know, in, in the West, of course, our usual narcissism, we think it's all about us. But the most ruthlessly militarized anti-immigrant frontier in the world is the Indian frontier with Bangladesh. And it's become, of course, even more so under Modi because he hates the idea of Muslim immigration. But India is very, very well aware that uh, if climate change produces huge flooding in Bangladesh, um, India will face a colossal problem from Bangladeshi migration. Um, and once again, I mean, this this is no distant threat. I mean, here we're talking about the next decades. And then, of course, then that will you know, hits the Middle East, then that's going to produce even more immigration to Europe. If it hits uh, the Sahel region in Africa, more ni- migration uh, to Europe. Uh, so Europe will certainly be on the forefront uh, of climate-driven immigration, I don't know quite when, but probably later than the U.S. Yes. And I mean, we've seen the political effects of that already. I mean, you know, the opinion polls are unequivocal about the impact of that on voting for the uh, for the extreme right. I think part of the problem with the debate on climate change is that, uh, I mean, it's not wrong, of course, to, to concentrate on the, the long-term direct physical effects, um, which could be catastrophic for the whole of humanity. But long, long before that happens, the indirect political effects uh, could very well be catastrophic for liberal democracy. And once again, I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, well, my God, I mean, we know already, given some of the elections in Europe, given Trump. I mean, that's no distant threat. That's something we're facing today. And, you know, yes, I mean, I I say in the book, long before the direct physical effects become catastrophic, you know, climate change will feed into existing 
political, social, economic problems, including extremism of various kinds, uh, and could, you know, really contribute to bringing down liberal democracy. So, uh, I mean, my, you know, my um, support for civic nationalism also makes the point that, you know, in the past, liberals and social democrats and certainly New Deal democrats in America saw absolutely no contradiction between being socialists, internationalists, but also being patriots, you know, believing in the interests and the, the identity and the solidarity of, of their country and the survival of their country. And that, I think, is what we, that mixture is what we need to get back to. All right. We just finished talking about all kinds of uh, stressors that seem to be preventing our society from coming together to deal seriously with climate change. Uh, we have the anti-science and hyper-capitalistic right. We have a progressive wing on the left that's proposing absurd ideas that will fracture the country, won't solve the problem, uh, etc. Uh, we have a nation, nation states across the world that seem to be failing in their capacity to deal with pretty much anything anymore. Uh, and yet we need, your argument I think is a convincing one, we need strong nation states if we're going to realistically deal with the climate catastrophe. So in the end, you have a whole chapter on the Green New Deal, and you express at least some rough ideas what that might look like that would help us to build the social coherence necessary and actually start to take smart actions to reverse uh, the coming climate catastrophe. So let's turn to your ideas on how we get out of this damn jam that we're in. Well, I think, first of all, you know, what you were saying about uh, a fuel tax actually putting money back in ordinary people's pockets. Um, I mean, that is essential uh, in terms of, uh, well, the New Deal element, you know, in terms of social solidarity, uh, while at the same time, you know, creating real pressure to limit carbon emissions and to reduce carbon fuels. So I think that would be an excellent start. I think it, the whole thing does need to be framed. And here, I suppose I do sound a bit contradictory. But I think that rivalry with China can be used in a positive and non-military and non-threatening way in this regard. And, you know, there were elements of this during the Cold War, um, the space race, obviously, the, the Sputnik moment when America was really galvanized into technological competition with the Soviet Union. Now, there were very bad aspects of that, you know, the missile gap scare and so forth. Uh, but the space race as such, thank God, did not threaten anybody. It didn't threaten war. It was, I mean, not to speak frivolously, but a, a kind of almost a, an a very expensive form of international sport. But I think, you know, casting the need, for example, uh, to move towards electric vehicles in terms of the fact that, you know, China is trying to do this by 2030, all new vehicles. Let's damn well beat them to it, I would say. And, you know, save the American car industry, which God knows needs saving, the automobile industry, um, through massive infusions of cash uh, designed, you know, to, to turn it electric. Um, and, of course, uh, link this absolutely to the maintenance of jobs. Beyond that, uh, of course, infrastructure. Now, 
there's a problem here. I mean, it, it's easier in, in Europe um, because clearly any you know, new infrastructure in the context of action against climate change uh, has to involve public transport, um, which has become yet another of these things that the, um, you know, the, the Republicans appear to have developed a, an, an insane obsession with opposition to public transport. Somebody should tell them that stagecoaches in the Wild West were a form of public transport. Nobody was against them. But clearly, uh, you know, it is disgraceful, frankly, that China should now have ultra high speed, you know, rail between dozens of medium sized Chinese cities. Admittedly, a medium sized Chinese city has 5 million people in it, but still, America does not have one. You know, when I first visited California as a kid, as a student in 1979, because of what had already happened in France and Japan, they were already talking then about the need for a high speed rail, rail link between uh, the Bay Area and Los Angeles. It's 41 years later and it still hasn't happened. You know, so couch it as the fact that you know, this, this is something that America used to be able to do. It can do it again and it needs to do it again. And this is where the real competition with China lies and not in building more damned aircraft carriers. Um, so that is... Um, one aspect of it, but the other aspect is uh, both real in terms of raising revenue, but also the critical importance of symbolism uh, in terms of uh, progressive taxation, taxing the rich, cracking down really hard on tax havens and tax evasion. Uh, frankly, I mean, this is what America should be pressuring my country, Britain, into. Um, you know, British help in closing down these, you know, still actually British sovereign tax havens in the Caribbean, not into sending our pathetic aircraft carriers to the South China Sea, which anyway have American aircraft on them because we can't build the things. Um, and finally, uh, concentrate uh, as much as possible of the effort of the new manufacturing uh, in the areas that are going to suffer from a transition away from fossil fuels. You know, I mean, justice demands that, but also politics demands that. So I think you know that that is the general package, um, and also the the rhetorical framing of the package that I would put forward. If it gets to the point where it just becomes essential uh, to reduce um, air travel for example, well, then there has to be rationing. People will only accept it if there is you know, a serious attempt. I mean, it will always be, of course, evaded and subverted, but some serious attempt uh, to spread you know, the cost and the difficulty throughout the whole of society. Yeah. And of course, uh, air travel is something we could also put serious R&D on. There are ways to do carbon neutral uh, air travel, for instance, biodiesel, right? You know, biodiesel's a little expensive for other uses, but probably we work and make an airplane ticket more expensive, but at least still, we still be able to fly. So, you know, we need to have some targeted and smart R&D and development on solutions to work around these choke points like air travel. And, and maybe, I mean, we have discovered over the past year that, you know, we can survive without a lot of this. You know, being, of course, being locked up indoors and not being able to meet family and friends and not 
being able to go out for a meal and you know go to the cinema. I mean, that is bad. But um, certainly, uh, I mean, we've discovered, for example, that you can hold so many international meetings and conferences uh, better by Zoom in many ways because they're so much cheaper. And you don't, you know, I've had organized a few conferences in my time. Uh, and of course, you, you, you don't have the, the constant nightmare of people missing their flights, getting, you know, um, get, not getting their visa or whatever. And uh, when it comes to air travel, for example, if we could slow down a bit um, and not have to sort of obsessively rush into sort of three conference meetings in different parts of the continent within three days. Um, I mean, if we could move away from the demand for this on the part of our employers, um, I I would be perfectly happy to travel around the world more slowly by balloon, um, even if it did take me um, several days longer to get there. I wouldn't be so happy, of course, if, if I, my balloon were, were promptly knocked out of the sky by some corporate jet shooting past. But um, in principle, I don't mind traveling around by Zeppelin at all. Well, yeah, I think that's we've actually talked about this on the show quite a bit. That we, you know, I do believe that there will be some changes in our trajectory that will come from this that will be good. You know, uh, you know, one of the things I talk about is that un- uh, unfortunately business travel had, had turned into a lot of symbols, symbol signaling, right? Oh, you're important enough that I'll fly to California to meet with you for an hour to talk about something trivial, right? Relatively trivial. Uh, but now we have learned that, you know, that social signaling comes at a huge expense of both everyone's time and money, but also uh, the carbon costs are, are non-trivial. And we now know that, uh, you know, instead of one one-hour meeting, we could have three uh, one-hour Zoom meetings, get a lot more done, a lot less wear and tear on each of us, and a lot less uh, damage to the ecosystem. So I think there's uh, you know, there are some, some beneficial things here. So again, um, you didn't quite wrap in a bow the importance in, in the solution for building social solidarity. You alluded to it, but when we talk about all this fragmentation and centripetal forces, seems to me that we got to solve that first before we have the ability to enact any of these other really difficult things? Well, uh, I mean, progressive taxation. Uh, you, you said that in uh, under Eisenhower, the top tax rate was 91%. You know, we need to move back uh, towards that. And yeah, I mean, that, that I think is is the first step. I mean, also to raise, you know, just to raise the necessary revenue. But also, also things like raise the minimum wage. You know, the fifteen dollar minimum wage would make a big difference. Child uh, support monies. You know, Europe, most countries give fairly substantial money out to families. Right, United States, we don't. You know, if we could do things like this to uh, lower economic and social inequality, to ratchet up social solidarity, so we can then make the tough decisions that we have to make to solve climate change. And, you know, support for families, support for children. Um, you, you talked about, you know, financial support for children, but obviously we also need, uh, you know, as they have in parts of Europe, much, much more generous, you know, mandated rules um, about parental leave. Absolutely. It's a disgrace in the United States that there isn't uh, a year's uh parental leave. And I think Sweden has two years, which can be split between the uh, the father and the mother, however they see fit. It's a disgrace. And of course, the worst disgrace of all in the United States is our healthcare system. Well, uh, absolutely. 
you know, a, a Medicare for all system, uh, which probably fits the U.S. a lot better than a national health system approach, uh, would make a gigantic difference in a feeling of social solidarity. You say, we're actually wacko lefties, right? <laughs> that, that's the crazy thing. I mean, you know, in, in the past, these would have been propositions that all sensible people could agree on. Um, and of course, one must blame the Republicans enormously for the, the, I mean, the straight lies they've pumped out about this. But I have to say, I mean, I was reading Obama's memoirs, um, and, uh, you know, the record of the Democrats in the Senate when it came to Obamacare and how they loaded it with, you know, provisions for the HMOs and the drug companies and so on, that was not a pretty sight. Yeah, I just finished reading that book. And yeah, that, that was indeed an example of sausage making at its worst. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would hope that at least in certain areas, like support for the family, you know, support for families, it might be possible to couch this in ways which would appeal to some Republican senators, assuming they're not all kicked out now from the party, but more importantly, simply to Republican voters. I mean, you know, very difficult, I think, even for the Sean Hannity's, certainly for the Tucker Carlson's, who actually spoken in these terms themselves, to oppose, um, you know, measures to support American families. You know, but once again, you don't want to accompany that with language from the woke left uh, about destroying the heteronormative family. That is not a vote winner. It's not a vote winner among Latinos, you know. Find a way of winning back at least some of those, you know, lost votes in, in the center. Um, because also, I mean, especially in, give, given the American system, and this is a point I make again and again, look, if you look at the Green New Deal, the new dispensation, if you look at what Reagan did, unfortunately, in the opposite direction in the 1980s, they didn't do that with 51% majorities um, and barely controlling the Senate. They, they did it with huge majorities. You know, and you need a big majority uh, to carry out the kind of measures that are necessary. And that means crafting you know, an appeal that will appeal to enough people. And it may be that the Democrats aren't capable of it. Uh, maybe we need a new centrist, common sense party in America. Uh, you know, there are plenty of Republicans disgusted by the, you know, cesspool that that party has become under Trump and to a lesser degree by some of the earlier people. And there's plenty of traditional Democrats who are entirely unwilling to, you know, swallow the, the nostrums of the far left. And maybe there's enough room in the center to get that 60% that could produce, you know, two-thirds majorities in the House and the Senate. Uh, it's at least worth thinking about. I think electorally speaking, that's true. But the problem is, of course, the entire, you know, electoral system is rigged against that. Yeah, the first-past-the-post system of the UK and uh, the US makes it, uh, from a game-theoretical perspective, damn hard, but not quite impossible. It's happened before, right? Unfortunately, we're about out of time here. Uh, and I'd like to thank you, Anatole Levin, and uh, encourage people who found this conversation interesting to check out his book, Climate Change and the Nation State. It is a really good read. Thanks a lot. That was great. I really enjoyed it. I hope we get to meet Yeah, one day we'll be traveling again. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. 
Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.